Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Well, if you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 19. It's week 41 in John's gospel. And in every generation, there is a leader that God sort of rises up uh, to be the senior leader for all of God's people. And in John's day, it was John. I would say in our day, it was uh, Dr. Billy Graham, who's having a really good day. He's with Jesus and his wife right now. So it's a really good day for him. i share a little story with you. It was... Uh, it was many years ago, I was a college student. I was a brand new Christian and I was working at a Marriott hotel and I was paying my way through school and uh, just you know, carrying bags, driving a shuttle van back and forth to the airport. And I don't know what day it was, it was just regular shift. And I look over in the restaurant as I'm walking by and there's an older guy there wearing a Minnesota Twins ball cap. He had big Coke bottle type glasses on and he's reading for you young kids, something called a newspaper, you can Google it later, but he was reading this. And uh, I thought, man, that, that guy looks familiar. I thought, that guy looks like Billy Graham. But there was no security detail. There was no entourage. He was just an old guy having breakfast. I thought, well, I'm gonna go find out. So I go into the restaurant. I said, excuse me, sir, I hate to bother you, which is what you say when you're about ready to bother someone. Um, I said, uh, you look very familiar. I said, are you by chance Dr. Billy Graham? And as soon as he spoke, I knew that it was. He's like, yes, I am. I can't do his voice, but it was awesome. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. One of my heroes, somebody I look up to. I, I would have considered him at that time, you know, the highest spiritual authority on the earth and a great man of God who had walked with God and served God faithfully for decades and earned the right to be respected. And so I just said, well, just thank you. Um, you know, I'm a new Christian. I told him a little bit about my story. And uh, he said, well, tell me how you met Jesus and tell me, so I shared a little bit of my testimony with him. And I said, you know, I feel called into ministry and shared some of that. And so he prayed for me encouraged me. And it was just a few minutes, but I, I was just overwhelmed at just the humility and the kindness and, and the emotional presence. And then I remembered I, I had to go to the airport to pick people up that were waiting. So be like, where were you? I was talking to Billy Graham. So, you know, just hold your horses. So I got in the van and went to pick people up and I come back. Well, now other people recognize it's Billy Graham. He sat there for, I don't know if it was an hour or two or more, I don't even know, because I was you know, back and forth to the airport and running bags and stuff. Next thing I know, guests are bringing their children and they're setting their kids on his lap like it's Santa at the mall. <laughs> Next thing I know, people that work at the Marriott are going to get those free Gideon's Bibles and bring them to Dr. Graham to sign. So they're stealing Bibles. And, um, <laughs> and for months afterward, the whole conversation around the Marriott was how genuine, how sincere, how humble, how kind Billy Graham was. And I was so honored. I'm like, gosh, what a great, humble servant. There was no security. There was no entourage. This was before the days of social media. No one, he was just there because he loved people. Whether he was on the platform or he was at the breakfast table, he just, he cared. But he had such a tremendous spiritual authority that was God-given. And everybody kind of knows who Dr. Graham was. And it's interesting, if you were to come forward at one of his crusades and give your life to Christ, do you know what they would give you? Anybody know? The Gospel of John. They would give you the Gospel of John. Because Dr. Graham thought if you're going to make a decision to walk with Jesus, the best place to get to know him is by reading the book that Jesus' very best friend wrote about him and all his eyewitness experience with Jesus. So he'd give you a copy of John's gospel. And in the days of the early church, John was the senior leader. He was the well-known highest spiritual authority on the earth. I believe by the time he writes John's gospel, he's an elderly man. All the other disciples are dead. He's the last living eyewitness. He writes three letters for second and third John. He writes the book of Revelation and the gospel of John, which we are studying. And it's gonna take us about a year to do so. I believe that he writes his gospel last. There were three written previously, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 60% of their material is familiar to one another. 90% of John's gospel is unique to John. I think in large part because his relationship with Jesus was unique. Not only was he one of the 12, 
He was one of the inner three. He was there at the most sacred, significant, special moments of Jesus' life and ministry. And so he's telling us about his life journey with his Lord. And so as we're spending about a year looking at John's gospel, everything has been leading up to this point in the storyline. We're nearing the end, not only of the book, but of Jesus' life. And it is culminating at the cross and everything is slowing down as John is preparing us to understand the love of Jesus demonstrated at the cross of Jesus. And I'll just tell you in advance, today's gonna be a bit of a heavy sermon and next week is gonna be a really heavy sermon. And I think it is sometimes good for us to not just say, God loves you and Jesus forgives all your sins but to stop, get out of the car and look at the vista and take in the details. And that's what we're gonna do in the ensuing week starting today. And the portrait that John has today of Jesus is as king. There are lots of motifs and metaphors regarding the Lord Jesus. Today, you're gonna learn about Jesus as king. And that's who John presents him to be not only his friend that he hung out with, not only his friend that he had meals with, not only his friend that he did life with, but his king, his king. And so we pick up the story in John chapter 19, verses one through five, and we're gonna look at four things regarding Jesus as our king. Number one, our king is humble. John 19, one through five, then Pilate. Okay, so let me introduce you to the characters. There are religious leaders that are agitators, And then there are political leaders like Pilate. And so what you have here is you have religious and political forces coming together in something that I will call an unholy alliance. They were not allies, they were enemies, but they came together in an unholy alliance to make Jesus their enemy. The same thing happens in business or sometimes in war or in politics or in troubled relationships or dysfunctional families, people who are enemies temporarily at least become allies against a common enemy. And so here, religious and political forces form an unholy alliance against Jesus. Pilate is the political leader. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. I'll explain that in a moment. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. When our first father, Adam, sinned, It tells us in Genesis three that thorns came into creation. And now we see the Lord Jesus, the last Adam, he is wearing a crown of thorns. All of this is a mockery of his kingship. This would have been incredibly painful. And now you've got blood flowing into his eyes and face. And they put on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe. Purple was the color of royalty. It was was the most expensive of dyes in that day. They came up to him saying, hail King of the Jews. So this is mockery. This is making fun of Jesus publicly and struck him with their hands. So he's getting slapped and he's taking a beating. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate is a politician torn between loyalties. He has the local insurrection of religious leaders who want Jesus dead. He's also got the political leadership over him of the ruler of the Roman empire. Man's name is Caesar. And he is trying to find an expedient way to get this resolved without resulting in a riot. So he's on the horns of a terrible dilemma. And he is going to say, I looked it up in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on at least seven occasions, Pilate says he's innocent. He's innocent but he still murders him, right? James says, if you know something that is right to do and you don't do it, for you it is sin. If he says seven times he's innocent and he murders him, then Pilate is guilty of doing what he knows is wrong, but he thinks that it's expedient and we all do that. There are things that we say and do that we know are not right, but we hope that they are beneficial. And in the end, they never are. That's the example of Pilate. Pilate went out again and said to him, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man, behold the man. First thing I wanna focus on is the humility of Jesus. Right now, let me ask you a question. In heaven, is there any pride 
arrogance or haughtiness in heaven right now? No, there is on the earth and it came down with Satan and the demons. The Bible says in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, that Satan became proud in his heart. That was the whole problem. As a result, he warred against God. Here there are religious and political leaders who have pride in their heart and they are similarly like Satan and the demons, they're warring against God. God and the angels won that war and the demons with Satan were cast down to the earth. When Satan and the demons came down, they brought pride with them. You and I were reared in an educational environment where pride is a virtue and not a vice. There is a list of things that God hates in Proverbs chapter six. And first on the list is haughty eyes or looking down on others or being proud. That God is humble and that those things that are aligned with Satan and demons are proud. We live in a day when everyone is encouraged to have pride and to have pride parades and pride declarations and pride statements and just to be proud and that's the whole problem. All of our problems started with pride and they're only resolved through humility. And so in this, we see this contradiction between the humility of Jesus and the pride of other leaders, particularly religious, legal, and political spheres. Um, And how do we know that Jesus is humble? Well, he came down. We live in a world where everyone is trying to go up, amen? In business, you're trying to go up. You're trying to go up the org chart, up the income stratus, get a bigger office, get a promotion, right? There's no CEO right now who is in the process of trying to become an unpaid intern, right? Nobody comes down, right? Politicians want more money and more power, not less money and less power, right? We live in a world where everyone is trying to go up. Jesus is the God who has come down. He's gone from a throne to a manger. He's gone from being worshiped by angels to working a carpenter's job. He's gone from judging the world to being judged by the world. That's incredible humility. He has come down to be with us. He has come down to be like us. And his humility is incredible because he is going to the grave. Not only did he come from heaven to earth, he's going to go from earth to under the earth, unprecedented, unparalleled humility. Furthermore, what we see in this occasion is that he is up against counterfeit priest and counterfeit judge. Here, he is being judged. Well, who's the real judge? Jesus is. He already told us in John chapter five that the father judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the son. Jesus has come to the earth to judge the earth, And then some leader stands up and says, I'm here to judge Jesus. No, Jesus is here to judge everyone. Furthermore, Jesus is before counterfeit religious leaders. I told you that God creates and Satan counterfeits last week. Well, here are the counterfeit religious leaders and high priests and they're judging the real leader and the real high priest. But Jesus is humble enough to endure this. He lets the judge judge him, he lets the religious leaders condemn him, and he alone is spiritual and he alone is judge. Unprecedented humility in the demonstration of self-control here on behalf of Jesus. And then it simply says that they took him and they had him scourged. So this is a replica from the first century. Um, Scourging was a way of publicly causing terror in the hearts of others. This was done openly and publicly in addition to crucifixion. We'll hit the crucifixion next week. But this was state-sponsored terror. This is like a Muslim country putting a beheading on YouTube. Everyone sees it and then they are discouraged from believing or behaving in the way that the person that is being persecuted, um, otherwise you'll suffer their fate. And so in that day, uh, historians tell us that there were three levels of scourging depending upon the crime that was committed. What Pilate is seeking to do here, though he says Jesus is innocent, he's trying to harm him, damage him, inflict punishment on him, hoping that it satiates and and it subdues the crowd. When people are in a mob frenzy, they do not stop until they taste death. And so his efforts to 
caused Jesus harm are not going to in any way subdue the riot and the mob. And the way it would work, this was public. And if you're from an Eastern culture or maybe an Asian culture, you know how important it is to save face. You don't wanna do anything to bring shame on yourself and or shame on your family. All of this was done publicly to bring shame on you and shame on your family. So they would take the person that was arrested, they would tie their hands, usually above their head, over a pole or a large stone, so that the man's back and buttocks and legs were exposed. And then two Roman soldiers would be on guard, each with what is called a flagrum or a cat of nine tails. Straps of leather, at the end there are balls that are made out of metal or stone to tenderize the flesh. And then there would have been hooks at the end, much like fish hooks, that would then sink deeply into the deep tissue and the organs. They would give a tug to ensure that the man's flesh was captured, and then they would literally rip the flesh off the man's body. Many men died from the flogging. It was such deep tissue trauma, right? The deep organs of the body are bleeding and an and absolute crisis. Uh, some historical records outside of the Bible say that a man's flesh, his skin would be so ripped off his body that it would just sort of flutter in the breeze like ribbons. Isaiah prophesied 700 years prior that Jesus would be, quote, marred beyond human likeness. Meaning if you knew him and then you saw him, you would not recognize him. He was literally a bloodied mess. For those men who were not then crucified, many were never psychologically the same. Almost like a soldier caught in a POW or concentration camp. They were traumatized and mentally they never recovered. Physically, they bore the marks of crucifixion and or scourging on their body. I mean, it was a horrible, fateful, dreadful way to suffer. And this is what was done to Jesus. And again, hear the words of Pilate on seven occasions in four gospels, he's innocent. Some historical records outside of scripture give report that the cat of nine tails would dig so deeply into a man's body that as they ripped the flesh from the body, there were reports of men's ribs coming flying off of their body. It's unprecedented, unparalleled trauma. And in all of this, they are mocking him. Here's your crown, crown of thorns, bleeding, pain. Here's your robe, king of the Jews. It's all mockery. It's all mockery. In this, we learn two things. Two of the most important things we can learn as we study the Bible. Who God is and who we are. Here we see how good God is, his name is Jesus. We see how bad we are. This is the failure and condemnations of religion and politics. Some people, their hope is in religion. If, if our religious leaders would just get in power and enforce our rules, then we get heaven on earth. This is the, this is the condemnation of religion. Others, their hope is in politics. If we could just get our elected officials into office and they could enact the laws that we want to be governing us, then we could experience heaven on earth. Well, this is religion and politics having their way destroying God. If you're here and your hope is in religion or politics, take this as a forewarning that that is a failure. And the Bible shows us not only who God is, but who we are. Now, I wanna sort of raise a question. Why would God come in humility? Why would God endure this sort of disregard, disdain? Why would he endure that? There's a parable, I was thinking of it today on the drive-in. I read it many years ago from a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Christian and I'll just sort of summarize this parable that he tells. And I think it gives a key insight on why Jesus came in humility. And the essence of the parable is this, that there was a king with a very significant kingdom, significant wealth and power, and he was single. And he decided that he wanted 
to be in love and to have a relationship and to take a wife. But the king knew that if he declared that he was seeking a spouse, a lot of women would be interested in him solely because he was the king and had a kingdom. And the women that had showed interest in him, they really weren't interested in him. They liked the thought of being a queen and having a kingdom. His heart inclined toward a peasant gal who was working a simple laborer's job. And so what he decided to do was to humble himself, to get down out of his castle in his high place and come down with the ordinary peasants. For an extended period of time, he took a job, a laborer's job, working alongside of this woman. She had no idea who he was. Eventually, his heart inclined toward her, her heart inclined toward him, and he knew that he had a relationship in which she loved him, not because he was the king, she didn't know he was the king. Not because he had a kingdom, she didn't know that he had a kingdom, she just loved him. So he proposed marriage, she accepted, they had a simple ceremony, and then he took her to his home. And she was shocked that she had married the king and inherited the entire kingdom. Jesus came in humility, I believe, in large part for that reason. If you can love him in poverty, you can love him in riches. If you can love him in humility, you can love him in glory. If you can love him while he is being publicly rejected, you can love him when he's being publicly respected. And so our goal today as the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, is to respond with love to our King who is humble and receive his invitation of relationship. But we also are blessed to know that there is a kingdom inheritance for the children of God. But our King is humble. And I need you to see that this is so different the, the pride that is welling up here, the religious pride is, Jesus will take our religious power. They're proud. The political leaders, Jesus is saying that he is a king and that could overthrow Caesar. Pride. Jesus is the one who alone is humble. Many reject him, some receive him. That's my hope for you today. Second thing we learn about our king. Our king is God. John 19, six and seven, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Um, mobs, riots erupted in the days of Jesus in the early church. For every action, there is a reaction. As people love Jesus, others hate Jesus. As crowds throng to Jesus, crowds throng to oppose Jesus. And what happens when a crowd or a mob comes together, this can be physically on the earth or this can be digitally online today. Somebody comes up with a slogan and to instigate the crowd, they start chanting the slogan. We see this at political events. We see this at sporting events. We see this in military campaigns. And here the slogan that is brought forth by the religious leaders is crucify him, crucify him. This is on their hats, this is all their merch, this is on the t-shirts, this is bumper stickers, this is their hashtag, right? This is the slogan in that day. This is the rallying cry. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Now they wanted him crucified, but they had no legal justification or authority to crucify him. Only the Roman government could crucify. That's why they're working with the Roman government. The Jewish law, I'll get to this in a moment, said that if you were gonna put someone to death, it was by stoning. They want Jesus to die in the most shameful and public and painful of ways. So they are using the governmental officials to seek their ends. The Jews answered him, we have a law. <laughs> it's amazing to me. Now they're gonna quote the Bible. Let me say this, people who know the Bible are dangerous if they don't know Jesus. People who know the Bible are dangerous if they don't know Jesus. Do these guys know the Bible? Yeah, do they know Jesus? No. He's standing right there, they have no idea who he is. They do not have eyes to see. 
The whole point of the Bible is to reveal to us Jesus. If you read the Bible and you don't get to Jesus, you miss the whole point of the Bible. Jesus already told us this back in John chapter five. I think it was around verses 38 and 39. He's having another argument with religious leaders. And he says, you diligently study the scriptures thinking that in them you will find eternal life. Yet you fail to recognize that these are the scriptures that testify about me and you fail to come to me to receive eternal life, paraphrase. What Jesus is saying is this, you don't know your Bible. They would say, we've memorized the whole thing. Yeah, but you've not met the hero. Unless your Bible reading leads you into relationship with Jesus, you may know the Bible, but you've missed the point of the Bible. And the point of the Bible is a loving relationship with Jesus. Evil happens when someone knows the Bible and they don't know Jesus. These people are quoting the Bible to destroy Jesus. We have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself what? The son of God, like father, like son. This is their way of saying, Jesus says he's God. He says he's equal with the father. He says that he is of the same essence and attributes of the father. Let me just say this very clearly. The issue in Jesus' day, the issue in our day, the issue in every day is simply this, is Jesus Christ God? That's the issue. When all is settled and all is said and done, the reason that Jesus is in trouble and on trial is because he says he's God. That's why. They are probably thinking of Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And then hear this, all the congregation shall stone him. Blasphemy is where someone says that they are God when they are in fact not God. And if someone says they are God, then they are to be put to death, how? Stoning. How are they seeking to crucify Jesus? Crucifixion, that's how they're seeking to murder him. Let me tell you this, they're not obeying the verse they quote. God says blasphemers get stoned. They say Jesus is a blasphemer, he'll get crucified. This is the problem with religious people. Religious people tend to use the Bible as binoculars and not a mirror. A past, one of our pastors uses this analogy. And so, What's wrong with you? What's your sin? What's your error? Where's your doctrine off? What have you done wrong? Where have you misinterpreted? Where are you not in alignment? It's binoculars. Eventually they take the binoculars and they put the binoculars on Jesus. Oh, here's all the problems we see with him. For them, the Bible is never a mirror. What's wrong with me? This is the height of arrogance and pride. They don't look at the word of God and ask, is there something wrong with us? Well, here, they're not even going to murder Jesus in the way that the Bible says, and they're gonna do it in the name of being biblical. Let me say this, you know that something nefarious and evil is afoot when you obey the Bible, but I don't. Or they obey the Bible, but they don't. If you're making everyone obey the Bible except for you, that's abuse. That's what's happening here. That's exactly what's happening here. So let me just say this plainly and clearly. Everything is culminated down to one issue. Jesus says he's God, is that true or false? That's the issue. There are two different categories regarding perspectives on Jesus. One are the cults who would claim to be Christian and their deviations of Christianity that would say that in fact, they are the purest form of Christianity, which is false. And then there are world religions, which similarly have an opinion about Jesus, but they don't claim to be Christian or from the scriptures. The Jehovah's, starting with the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, I quote the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, quote, Jesus never claimed to be God. Question, why is Jesus on trial? Because he claims to be God. I, I would tell you this, 
if somebody thought I said something that I didn't say and they were going to crucify me, I would correct the public record, amen? This would be the time I'd be like, oh, you guys thought I said I'm God, I'm dyslexic. I was talking about my dog, my bad, you know, sorry. I mean, that's what I'd do, I'd get out of it. How about the Mormons? They say he was a polygamist, half brother of Lucifer, a man who became one of the many gods and other men can follow in his example and likewise become gods. Unitarians say that he was not God, but he was a teacher and a philosopher of love and peace and justice and set a good moral example. Christian science founder, Mary Baker Eddy says, quote, Jesus Christ is not God. So the quotes from the cults is simply consistently, Jesus is not the only God. Go over to the world religions. What is their perspective on Jesus? The Baha'is say that Jesus is a manifestation of God and he is inferior to prophets like Muhammad and Buhala. Buddhism believes in a pantheon, a multitude of gods. They have many perspectives of Jesus. He's either a guru or he's one of the many gods, but he's not the only God. Hinduism similarly um, has many perspectives and views of God. Buddhism, let me correct that. I have the flu. I am hopped up on cold medicine and everything is moving except for me. I am just <laughs> preaching in a spinning top right now. So if we get to the end, add it to the list of Jesus' miracles. Buddhism actually does not believe in a personal God, but they believe that Jesus was an enlightened man like the Buddha. Islam says that Jesus was a mere prophet, but he is inferior to their prophet, I would say false prophet, Muhammad, in the new age or new spirituality says that Jesus is a guru, an enlightened man, but not God. The point is that the cults and the religions all say that Jesus is not the only God. Only Christians believe that there is one God and his name is Jesus Christ, okay? And so the issue really comes down to Jesus. He is the most significant person who has lived in the history of the world. More songs sung to him, more paintings painted of him, more books written regarding him, more lives devoted to him than anyone who has lived in the history of the world. Furthermore, we divide time by his life into BC before Christ, AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Jesus is the most towering figure in the history of the world. And some would say he's not God, but he's just good. And what I would say, if he tells you he is God, if he tells you that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, if he tells you that he has come down from heaven, if he tells you that he is without sin, if he tells you that he alone can forgive sin, if he alone tells you that he can answer prayer and that's not true, he's not a good man. He's actually the worst, most deplorable, despicable, and damnable man in the history of the universe. What he is saying is so significant that it is without precedent or peer. There is no major world religion in the history of the world that has its founder making this claim, I am God. Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, whomever you choose, they all said the same thing, I am not God. Jesus steps forward in a category unto his own and says, I am God. He says it openly, he says it publicly, he says it repeatedly, he says it consistently, and he says it under the most painful circumstances, a sleepless night where he was beaten mercilessly, repeatedly, where he has been arrested, he has been publicly flogged, and he is about to be crucified before his own mother. What he says is true or false. And my job is to lovely, lovingly, I hope, you know, humbly, I hope, persuasively, I hope, present to you Jesus, but your job is to make a decision about who you think Jesus is or who you trust Jesus to be. But for us, we declare our King is God. Story continues, our king is also Lord. John 19, eight through 11. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. This is the emotional insight to Pilate. 
He's afraid. Pilate is under tremendous pressure. The leader of the Roman Empire was an unstable and dangerous man who was worshiped as a god. And he would give political leaders jurisdiction and he wanted two things, peace and taxes, that's it. This is during the Passover. The population in Jerusalem has swelled. We know what that's like in the valley, amen? Right? Some of you are here now, right? June, July, and August, I call them the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist. They unleash the flames of hell on the earth. When those three months come, you don't have to make a dinner reservation. There's nobody here, right? But during spring training or Barrett Jackson or the wasted management, notice I didn't call it waste management, the wasted management golf tournament, because everybody's wasted. True or false, the population swells. All of a sudden, there's a lot more people here and they got a lot of free time. Well, that's what's happening here. It's their day off. It's their holiday season. Everybody goes to Jerusalem. They got a lot of free time. And then that means that there is a greater possibility of insurrection because all these religiously devoted people are coming together and there's a percentage of agitators that want to overthrow the Roman government. So this, is, this would be on the security terror alert. This would be the red. Pilate's thinking, how do I keep this from insurrecting? Because if it gets to my boss, he's literally gonna have my head. And so he is afraid. Let me say this. There will be seasons and circumstances in your life where you're under great pressure. But if you make a decision based in fear, it's almost always the wrong decision. And we're to make decisions in faith, not in fear. He's afraid. He's afraid. He should have faith in Jesus, but he has fear in the crowd and fear in his boss. You and I are constantly put in the same position as Pilate. We're needing to make decisions under duress and pressure, and we are torn between faith and fear, and he is gripped with fear. He was afraid. He entered his headquarters, so everything outside is sort of escalating. The guy goes back into his house to figure out, what in the world am I going to do? He's a consummate politician, so he's trying to find some sort of compromise, which is probably why he had Jesus flogged in the first place. Maybe if I send Jesus out there all mocked, scourged, maybe that'll calm him down. It did not. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, so now he's face-to-face having a conversation with Jesus. Pilate has been face-to-face with a lot of bad guys. Some of you are police officers. Some of you are counselors or therapists. Some of you know a bad guy. You're like, when I'm with a bad guy, I know a bad guy. He's with Jesus. You know what he knows? This is not a bad guy. This is a good guy. Where are you from? Jesus gave him what? No answer. It's amazing to me. Jesus likes to ask questions and expects us to answer. He doesn't really like being on trial, us demanding things from him. So he doesn't answer. There's a good lesson for you here. If someone is interrogating you, harassing you, sometimes the best thing is just stay silent. That's what Jesus does. So Pilate said to him, Pilate now is gonna be pride, prideful. He's gonna pull out his resume. Jesus, you'll be very impressed. Let me show you my LinkedIn page. Um, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and crucify you? I'm Pilate, I work for the Roman government. I can let you go or I can hang you up. I'm very important. I love what Jesus said. Jesus answered him, you would have zero nilch, not a no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. He says, you know what? Your authority is delegated. It's actually delegated from me. So congratulations. You're powerful because I let you be. Do you see where Jesus refuses to be under the authority? He's the one in authority. That's what it means to be Lord. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
So let, let me show you this. There are two men here, literally face to face. The whole storyline and the, you know, the camera shot is focused in on Pilate and Jesus. This is what we're gonna talk about Wednesday night at men's. How under pressure men can learn from the negative example of Pilate and the positive example of Jesus. So let's compare and contrast a little bit. Pilate is gripped by fear. Jesus is filled with faith. It looks like Pilate is the free one, but he's not. Jesus is actually the free one because Jesus is walking in the will of God. Pilate is fighting the will of God. That's why he's tormented, he's anxious, he's fearful, he's not free. Pilate, his primary concern is winning. Jesus' primary concern is worshiping. Pilate wants things to go the way that he wants them to go. Jesus is worshiping the Father, letting things go the way that the Father wants them to go. What happens in this as well, there's an addition to the storyline. It's in Matthew, I think, 27, 19. It says that God had already revealed and spoken to Pilate's wife, that she had something that I will call a prophetic dream. There's a difference between a prophecy and a vision. A vision is where you see something in the future when you're awake, and a dream is a similar experience when you're asleep. Uh, prophets and prophecy prepare God's people for the future, or they prepare people for the future. Pilate's wife, we are told, she had a prophetic dream. She had a dream that Jesus was a good man and they were doing a bad thing. And so I'm summarizing the story, but she told her husband, don't do wrong by that man, Jesus. He's a good man. He's not a bad man. Bad things will happen if we do a bad thing to him. What this shows is that our God is a God who reveals himself. Sometimes people will ask, well, what about all those people that never heard about Jesus? My question is, how do we know they never heard? I don't know. My God can use an angel. My God can use a vision. My God can use a dream. I've seen my God speak to somebody through a bush. He's creative, amen? He can get it done. I don't know. There are a large number of people that are converting right now in closed Muslim countries because they're having prophetic dreams where they die and stand before Jesus to give an account and they realize that Jesus is Lord and they get saved. My point is God has done an incredible amount of work to give Pilate the opportunity to do the right thing. Firstly, Jesus, God incarnate is standing before Pilate. There are people who say, if I would have been alive in the days of Jesus, if I would have seen him perform the miracles, if I would have heard him preach the sermons, I would believe in him. Judas didn't, Pilate didn't. And some of you, well, if God would just give me something supernatural, he did. He gave a prophetic dream to Pilate through his wife. Pilate's feeling the pressure here, right? The religious leaders are freaking out. The emperor over him will crush him if he doesn't keep things under control. So he goes home and his wife is like, I had a prophetic dream, do the right thing. This guy's, he got nowhere to go. James 4, 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is a sin. Pilate knows the right thing to do and he doesn't do it because he is torn between kingdoms. We all are. So the key for us is to think long-term, not short-term. Gripped by fear, Pilate is going to make a very short-term decision I will hand Jesus over to the mob to be crucified. That will quelch the riot. That will keep my boss happy. That will secure my job. And in the future, perhaps guarantee my promotion. He's trying to go up. 
He was, a, he, was a, he was kind of a political hack. He was a poor guy from a rural area, not a big deal, but he was very ambitious. Through intermarriage and deal brokering, he finally got himself into a leadership position. And if he executes well under difficult circumstances, he might get promoted. So he's thinking very short-term. How do I keep the riot down? How do I keep my job opportunities open? What he's not thinking about is, am I gonna die and go to hell forever? Pilate is thinking very short-term. Jesus is thinking very long-term. Short-term, Jesus is gonna go to the cross. Long-term, he's gonna go through the cross, through the grave, conquer Satan's sin, death, hell, the wrath of God and return to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus has a long view of things. Pilate has a very short view of things. Let me tell you this, when you're under pressure and you've got decisions to make, if you have fear and think short-term, it's not going to go well for you. If you have faith and think long-term, it will go better for you. That's the contrast between Pilate and Jesus. Lastly, I wanna show you this line. Therefore, he who delivered me, go back real quick. He who delivered me over to you has the what? Greater sin. All sin is sin. But some sins have greater consequence. As a result, there is greater punishment. We have this in our legal system. Jaywalking versus homicide are both crimes with different penalties. So it is with the justice of God. For those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, do not belong to the Lord Jesus, in hell there will be degrees of punishment according to their disobedience. Similarly, for the believer, the one who does belong to the Lord Jesus, there are greater degrees of reward in heaven. See, if you're a Christian today and you are suffering, and you are obedient, and you're walking in the will of God, there will be eternal rewards for your temporary faithfulness. Okay? There's encouragement there. That you are sending your inheritance ahead. You're not able to enjoy it today, but it waits for you for that eternal day. What he's saying here is Pilate you are sinning and there is going to be consequence for you, but those religious leaders who handed me over, they're guilty of the greater sin. They know the Bible, they've been waiting for me. I've sent prophets to prepare them for my coming and they have rejected me. So there is greater sin by them, greater punishment for them. Now, let me say this. Not only does Pilate kill Jesus, history outside of the Bible records that years later, his career seemed to have moved forward. He got what he wanted and then he killed himself. Pilate not only killed Jesus, he eventually killed himself. Uh, I can't prove it, but I wonder if after being face to face with Jesus, and sentencing him to death, if that's something that Pilate never recovered from. All he had to do was repent. All he had to do was trust. All he had to do was receive Jesus and he didn't. We have no indication that he ever was saved, became a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And as a result, he takes Jesus' life and then he takes his own life. It's tragic. It doesn't have to be that way for him or you. Jesus would have forgiven Pilate and he would forgive you. Fourth thing we learn about our king, that our king is rejected. He's received by some, he's rejected by others. John 19, 12 through 16, from then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews, the religious leaders cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Here's the unholy alliance. The political leaders, the religious leaders, they hate each other. 
Now the religious leaders will appeal to political loyalties. Did the Jewish people care anything about Rome? Answer, nah. But they are using the political system to do evil. It's pressure. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. So he comes out, he takes a seat as judge. He is judging the judge of the universe. Let me say that we do this all the time, all the time. I'll never forget, I was brand new Christian in college, State University seemed like every class I went to, the professor sat in his seat and judged Christianity. There is no shortage of people who wanna sit in a judgment seat over Christianity. The story continues. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. We'll get into all of this. It was about the sixth hour. See, John knows all of this because John was there, somewhere in the orbit of all that is occurring, John is present. He's an eyewitness. He said to the Jews, behold your king. He's sort of mocking them. They cried out, away with him, away with him, what? Crucify him again. They're violating their own scriptures. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? He's instigating. The chief priests, the religious leaders answered, just, Capture the magnitude of this. We have no king but Caesar. They have just done the very thing that they are condemning Jesus for. Blasphemy. They're saying that Caesar is above Yahweh. See, the Roman Empire it would overtake multiple nations and religions and cultural language and people groups. And they didn't care what your convictions were as long as you declared Caesar is Lord. That means that he's the highest God. Now, most of the people didn't really believe that. Some people did worship the emperor, but most of the people was like, Caesar is Lord, whatever. I just sort of keep the government off your back and do your thing when the religious leaders step forward and say, there is no king but Caesar. What they are saying is, Yahweh does not exist. Any God that we worship is under Caesar who we now worship as our highest God. Again, emotional, mob mentality, fear-based, pride, short-sightedness. So we delivered him over to them to be crucified. Again, what we have here is an unholy alliance. Religious and political leaders coming together because they're proud and they're threatened by the humility of Jesus. All of this happens at the temple, in that orbit of the temple, which was to be the connecting point between the seen and the unseen realms. The unseen realm is the realm of God and the angels and the seen realm is the realm of people and nations. God always had a connecting point, be it a tabernacle or a temple. And here it's the presence of Jesus, God become a man. He is the temple, he is the holy place, he is the presence of God on the earth. All of this happens during the season of Passover. Passover was their remembrance of liberation and deliverance by God. And it just struck me in Exodus, the story is there was a very powerful nation. There it was Egypt. In Jesus' day, it was Rome. The ruler of that nation was the Pharaoh who was worshiped as a God. The ruler of Rome that was worshiped as a God in their day was Caesar. And what did the real God do to the Pharaoh? He crushed him, showing that he was the real God. And in Passover, they say, no, we reject the real God who delivered us. And if they would have been alive in the days of the first Passover, they would have been voting for the Pharaoh. And God delivered them through the shedding of blood of a substitutionary lamb, showing one without spot, 
fault, blemish, or flaw, pointing to the sinlessness of Jesus. By faith, they would impute or reckon or consider their sins transferred to that innocent, unblemished substitute. They would then slaughter that animal and they would paint the doorposts of their home with the blood of the lamb and then death would literally pass over them because of their public demonstration of faith in the forgiveness of God. Let me just say this, your faith is a public matter, not just a private matter. There was a story, uh, a poll recently came out saying that millennial Christians tend to think that evangelism is wrong because faith is to be a private and not a public matter. Let me say this, God walking on the earth was a public matter. God being crucified before a crowd was a public matter. God rising from death and appearing to crowds upwards of 500 at a time is a public matter. And Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead, I assure you of this, will be a public matter. Jesus is not just Lord of your heart, he is Lord of all. They would have their faith be public through the blood of the lamb. And this instituted the Passover celebration that was occurring every year. The whole reason that they are rushing to murder Jesus, they wanna get him murdered so that they don't miss the holiday. Just shows you can be so busy doing religious things that you miss God. And here is Jesus. I think it was... John 129, John the baptizer says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Reflecting back on the sacrifice of Jesus, I think Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ our Passover lamb has been slain. All that they were waiting for is being fulfilled in Jesus and they miss Jesus. Don't just come to church and miss Jesus. Don't sing songs and miss Jesus. Don't listen to the sermon and miss Jesus. Don't take communion and miss Jesus, amen? Don't celebrate Christmas and miss Jesus. Don't celebrate Easter and miss Jesus, we do this all the time. We're so busy with our religious responsibilities that we forget to meet with Jesus. We miss him. They did. We can too. By saying that Caesar is king, they are denying the God of the Bible all of this transpires at the sixth hour, which by their reckoning of time is around noon. The Passover meal was to be eaten that night. So the slaughter of the lamb started hours previously because of so much work to be done. At this point, they are literally preparing the lambs for slaughter and they are preparing the lamb of God for slaughter as well. So, I'm not feeling well. This is probably not my most encouraging sermon. The Bible is good news. The question is, where's the good news? Well, the good news is with Jesus. The good news is always about Jesus. So let me tell you some good news. Jesus, our King, is so good that he works good even in spite of and through evil. Everything that's happening here, evil. What Jesus does out of this is good. You and I, we live by faith until we see it by sight. At this point, they're in the middle of the story. At this point, we're in the middle of our story. There's evil, but God works it out for good, right? Now, the Bible tells us that God works all things for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose, but it doesn't tell us when. You may not see God work out all evil for good in this life, but you will in the life to come. So if you're suffering, if your reputation has been harmed, if you've been taken advantage of or rejected, just know this, God works out evil for good. It doesn't mean that God is evil, God is good. God is so good that he's bigger than evil. In addition, when you suffer, here's good news, your king identifies with you. Here, your king Jesus, he suffered relationally. When you're suffering relationally, he understands. He's suffering physically. When you're suffering physically, he understands. 
He's suffering emotionally. When you're suffering emotionally, he understands. He is suffering spiritually. When you're suffering spiritually, he understands. The Bible says that we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Whatever you're going through, you can go to Jesus and Jesus doesn't say, sorry, I have no no category of that. I have never experienced that. He said, actually, I came down. I know exactly what you're going through. Let me take your hand and walk you through your valley of the shadow of death. I've been there. I'll walk it with you. I have compassion for you. I have mercy for you. I have empathy for you. I have understanding and sympathy for you. And let me say this too. In this instant, who is Pilate thinking about? He's thinking about Pilate. Who's Jesus thinking about? He's thinking about you. He's thinking about you. Pilate is deciding to do what he thinks is best for him. Jesus is deciding to do what's best for us. See, when Jesus goes to the cross, we'll deal with this next week, so do come back. I keep reading ahead. It gets better. The suffering of Jesus is something done by us and for us. The suffering of Jesus not only reveals the goodness of God, but the badness of humanity. So as you read the story, you got to figure out which group am I in? Here are your choices. And they're all bad. I could be part of the mob who is trying to, you know, just trend on social media with the crucify him, crucify him hashtag, the latest moral outrage and offense. I could be with the political leaders trying to create peace and political harmony for the sake of my career and the general well-good. I could be part of the legal profession seeking to just, you know, execute the laws. The point is simply this, you could be with the religious folks who feel like, well, the leaders quoted a verse, you know, and we just follow the leader. Those are the four teams you can pick and they're all wrong. But you and I would be on one of those four teams. Me, honestly, personally, if I'm totally transparent with you, probably with the religious guys. If all the scholars came to the same conclusion and quoted the verse, that's probably the team I would have picked. Right, I can't just condemn all the religious leaders because I happen to be a religious leader. Ergo, I would have been part of the problem. The point is that we're all part of the problem. And Jesus' death is by us, he dies for our sin, and it's for us, he dies that we could be forgiven. And here's what's amazing. Why does God go to all of this work such great lengths and expense, because God is loving, God is relational. I was talking to Gracie about that this week. Most of our relationships, we need something from someone or we benefit from someone, amen? It's most of our relationships. Does Jesus need us for anything? Answer, no. Do we benefit him? No. I know I don't. I know I'm not gonna stand before Jesus and be like, thank you, Mark. Couldn't have done it without you. Glad you're here. The angels have got a prize. We are so glad you made it. Jesus doesn't need me. I don't bring benefit to him. Why in the world does he want a relationship with me? Because he's loving and good. That's what Paul calls the mystery of the good news of Jesus. That's a total mystery. So when we look at the suffering of Jesus, I don't want us to think, I must be really valuable. I want us to think, he must be really loving. Just sort of overwhelmed and stunned that my God would go to these lengths to have a relationship with me, to forgive my sin. Most people, their first defense is, I'm a good person. You know what? I have something better than that. I'm a forgiven person who's loved by a good person. So I'm gonna invite you to respond. Everybody's gotta make a decision about Jesus. Everybody in the story made a decision about Jesus. We're gonna collect our tithes and offerings at this point. 
This is a way of worshiping Jesus. We put response after the sermon because I want you to hear the word of God and respond. It's the one thing Pilate didn't do, amen? He didn't respond. As we collect our tithes and offerings, I want you to prepare your heart for communion. We take communion every week because we forget Jesus every week. And as we look at the bread, we remind ourselves of Jesus' broken body. As we partake of the drink, we remind ourselves of Jesus' shed blood. Ushers can collect the offering at this time. And if you believe in Jesus, belong to Jesus, or you decide that you're going to make a decision today about Jesus, you're welcome to partake of communion. It's our way of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, the love of Jesus. In addition, we're going to sing. And my question to you, my friend, would be this. Who is your king? Who is your king? That's the question today. Pilate made his decision. Who is his king? Caesar. The religious leaders made their decision. Who is their king? Caesar. John, who writes this, made his decision. Who is his king? Jesus. We want you to make your decision that Jesus is your king. And as we worship him, we do that which John Departed saints and angels do, and that is to sing the goodness and greatness and grandness and glory of Jesus. So I'm gonna invite the band forward at this time. And we're gonna sing a song that I think is particularly significant for this moment. Just see Pilate standing before Jesus. Jesus is the presence and essence of love. And rather than standing in that love of Jesus, he literally collapses and crumbles under the weight of fear. And the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, it's demonic. Furthermore, God says that perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. Pilate was afraid of consequence and punishment. And as a result, he stood in fear, not in faith. He's in the presence of love and he doesn't receive that love. I want you to meet with Jesus right now. I want you to receive his forgiveness. I want you to enjoy that relationship. I want you to stand in that love. Father God, as we come to worship through giving of tithes and offerings, through confession of sin and folly, through partaking of communion and singing of song, Holy Spirit, we invite you to bring the presence of Jesus, to bring the love of Jesus, that Lord God, like John, we could stand in your love and that unlike tragically Pilate, we would not fall because of fear. We ask that your love would cast out fear and that you would make us strong, that whatever decisions we have to make, whatever fate we have to endure, that we would do so humbly out of love for the one who has loved us so well. And his name is Jesus. Amen. If you live in or are visiting the Greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.